Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Wellness. 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 Vitamins and supplements. Ozempic and Wegovy. The detox diet. You sweat out the toxins. I eat more than bone broth and vegetables. I always like try and get a little bit of meditating in. Try out cryotherapy. Corporate wellness company. Any kind of skincare, any kind of self-care. But I take it almost regularly. No wonder your skin looks great. Our new series, Well Founded, digs into all the information out there about what it really means to live a healthy life. And if there is one idea that is fundamental to that discourse about health and wellness, it may well be weight. Lose weight, Oprah tells you, and your life will improve. I have had a better life since being a part of the WW family. It is a constant decision to remain healthy and strong and vibrant. You have real appreciation for every day that you wake up with a healthy mind and a healthy body. It's a powerful piece of accepted wisdom. It's better to be thinner than fatter. And if it's possible to lose weight, we all should try to do so. Kate Mann says that idea is not only wrong, it's damaging. And in the end, she says it's immoral. Kate Mann is a feminist moral philosopher who has written books on concepts like misogyny and male privilege. Her new book, Unshrinking, is partly a manifesto against fat phobia, but it's also an exploration of her own feelings about, in her words, being fat in a society that is constantly telling her to change. Kate Mann is in Ithaca, New York. Kate, hello. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. The dedication to your book is to your parents. And you say that you dedicate this to them in part because they let you be me. Yeah, it's it's interesting. A lot of people who were fat or chubby children, as I was, have stories to regale people with of facing fat phobia at the hands of their parents. And that's quite different than my story. My parents were very accepting, very loving. Family meals were really an occasion for connection and conversation rather than policing bites of food. So yeah, the fat phobia that I faced had a different source. Tell me about what happened when you went out on on a publicity tour for your first book. This is a new book, but you, you've written, as I said, several books in the past. And you went out, as one does as an author, to, to talk to people about that book, to sell that book. What happened when you went out there? Yeah, well, I mean, the first kind of real encounter I had with fat phobia was in high school. But I found myself when I published my first book and the book was on misogyny. So it hit at a really um, key time. It hit uh, just by coincidence the week the Me Too movement was publicized by celebrities like Alyssa Milano after having, of course, been led by Tarana Burke for over a decade. But because there was much more publicity for my first book than anyone had expected, people were just very interested in the topic of misogyny and sexual harassment and rape culture. I was doing publicity where I found myself turning down so many opportunities, especially to appear on camera, because I didn't want anyone to realize that I was a fat woman. 
And it had echoes of the kind of bullying that I'd faced in high school, where if anyone saw a glimpse of a headshot where I looked the way that I in fact am, which is a small fat person, there would be immediately comments online about, no wonder she wrote a book on misogyny with that body. Um, Of course, she is bitter and unhealthy and twisted and all these other negative things that uh, really hurt. What was that like hiding your own body, as you said, while you're, you're promoting a book about misogyny? It felt very ironic because, of course, the point of the book was that we should be resisting patriarchal norms and expectations as women. And one of the most powerful patriarchal norms and expectations takes the form of beauty norms that say we should be not only quiet and meek and pliable, but also small, make our bodies as small and as conforming as possible. You also say in this new book that among progressives, fat phobia is vastly less important than other kinds of oppression. Tell me about that. Yeah, there is this perception amongst progressives that really fat phobia doesn't matter somehow. And people of my political genre, people on the left, are often up in arms about racism and misogyny and classism and ableism and transphobia as well we should be. But I think there's a lack of awareness that fat phobia intersects with every other major form of oppression. It's a powerful tool for misogyny, as I've found in my own life. Um, It's also uh, something which fat phobia really has its roots in anti-Black racism, as has been shown powerfully by the sociologist Sabrina Strings. It's the kind of thing which is a powerful marker of class as well as race. So we really can't address classism without addressing fat phobia. And it's a powerful way in which trans folks are restricted and gatekept out of getting gender affirming, often life-saving care on the basis of their BMI. We should talk about language because there are people still, I mean, this far into our conversation, who are going to hear you use the word fat and use that word to describe yourself and, and still recoil. Are we at a place now where, how do you think about that word? And how do you think yeah. about using that word? Yeah, I think, look, it's a word that can be sensitive for many people. I think that in the tradition of fat activism, which I see myself as part of that movement, there is some positive value in reclaiming the word fat as a purely neutral description of some bodies, like the word short, like the word tall. I don't like words like fluffy or husky or curvy. They feel kind of euphemistic to me. But I'm also not a huge fan of words like quote unquote, overweight or obese, because those are very medicalizing, pathologizing terms for the fat body. And oftentimes we actually find that people in the quote unquote, overweight category of the BMI have better mortality statistics. You talk about how, and this is what you write about in the book, that that the issue of fat phobia broadly has, has made you miss out on a lot in life. I want to talk about some some specific areas where, and health is one of them, work is another one. But when you say that it's made you miss out on a lot in life, what are you talking about there? Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is that I think fat bodies are often precluded from many of the kinds of freedoms and pleasures that we take for granted if we have smaller bodies. 
And I should say that I have been much heavier than I am now, but I now identify as a small fat person. So in the parlance of fat activism, it's useful to distinguish between small fat people, mid fat people, and large fat people to differentiate degrees of relative oppression versus privilege um, in this way. But yeah, I'm someone who has never... um, you know, until recently, I had never gone swimming because I didn't want to be seen in a bathing suit. I had never gone dancing or eating at a restaurant became very fraught for me. And I think importantly, too, when it comes to things which go beyond the category of pleasures and joys, but are in the um, realm of things people simply need, I, like many fat people, when I was very heavy, I avoided going to the doctor to seek basic medical and preventative care because I was afraid of being fat shamed when I got there. You say that nowhere is fat phobia more evident than in healthcare from the moment we enter a doctor's office. Tell me about that. Totally. So I think oftentimes the medical encounter is just rife with fat phobia through and through. So one of the things, of course, is that Many people are weighed automatically as soon as they enter the doctor's office, which is often completely unnecessary for someone's medical treatment. Then there is often a lack of material access to medical care because there isn't necessarily a blood pressure cuff or a needle or an examination table or even a chair or a gurney or a surgical table suitable for larger patients. Now, a part of this too is simply physician attitudes and This has been studied extensively. Physicians will say things like they feel like fat patients are a waste of their time. They will tick the box in the survey that says this fat patient is more likely to annoy them. They even say they have less desire to help fat patients. So similarly, nurses will often say they're repulsed by fat patients, that they don't want to touch our bodies. This is a really uh, pretty explicit and gnarly bigotry that fat patients are facing just in order to get basic medical care. And so unsurprisingly, as people do have an increasing body mass, in proportion to that, people start avoiding going to the doctor. And this is particularly true for women. So when we look at some of the negative health outcomes for people who do have a very high weight we really have to take into account the fact that these people are often getting really inadequate medical care due to bigotry and bias. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Is it wrong to be concerned? And this is, you will hear doctors talk about this, that yes, you can be, and this is you know a word that you've raised alarm bells around, but you can be um, overweight as doctors might see that, but also be metabolically healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it wrong to be concerned about excess weight leading to health problems like type 2 diabetes or heart disease or joint pain? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a very, again, nuanced conversation that we have to have. So what epidemiological evidence that has been meticulously gathered by people like Catherine Flegel, who was an award-winning CDC scientist, what that shows is that the relationship between weight and health looks like a U-shaped curve 
with people who are in the quote unquote overweight category um, actually having the lowest mortality statistics on average. And then people who are in the quote unquote moderately obese category, that is having a BMI between 30 and 35. Um, and by the way, I hate the BMI, but it's just, I'm using it here as a reference. The body, point ma- body mass index. Right. So people with this BMI of between 30 and 35 have a similar mortality risk profile to people of average weight, which by the way is a lower weight than the average American or Canadian. So it's a bit of a misnomer again. Now it is true that people who are either underweight or people who are more than moderately obese in these categories do have greater uh, health problems in terms of the correlations. But we should be careful about assuming that that correlation is causation, because what we find, especially at very high body weights, is people are subject to weight stigma, they're subject to inadequate medical care, people at that weight are often being put on diets, and then almost inevitably regaining that weight, because that's what diets do, is they tend to lead to weight cycling of being in this cycle of constantly gaining and then losing weight which has independent negative health effects on the body. Um, Now, it may be that it's also causation. It may be that just sheer adipose tissue at a certain degree does cause health problems. Um, But again, we should be a bit careful about this because other studies suggest that rather than increased weight causing things like type 2 diabetes, there's actually evidence that it at least partially goes the other way and early diabetic processes cause increased hmm. weight. Do you think people are willing to accept the nuance of that? It was interesting. You'd just been out on, on a book tour and you were doing an interview on a podcast and there were comments after the interview was posted. Um, and somebody said, th- this is their words, being fat is not healthy no matter what anybody says. And you could imagine mm-hmm. that there are people who would agree with that. I just wonder what the counter argument is or whether people are willing to accept that nuance. Yeah, I think oftentimes they aren't. This is why I think the idea that fatness is just unhealthy tends to be a thought-terminating cliche. But that's the end of the conversation. Yeah, it's a kind of conversation stopper because that's why it's so important not just to really dig deep into this evidence that shows this kind of complicated story, but to add the addendum to it that, look, even if this were true, even if this, um, I think very oversimplified picture of the relationship between being fat and being unhealthy were wholly true, what would follow from that? If the idea of people just being too fat to deserve adequate health care and compassion and humane treatment sounds wild, that's because it is. Um, That's because that is sheer bigotry at play rather than something that actually deserves to be taken on board and listened to. People who are unhealthy are valid and deserve to be cared for. Is that why you say that that unhealthy is kind of a dog whistle? Yeah, I think What's, it, what's it a dog whistle for? I think it's a, a dog whistle oftentimes for someone who is immoral. They're often really not that concerned about our health, as shows up in the fact that these are sometimes the same people who won't get vaccinated to protect community health at large. And they're sometimes the same people who won't wear a mask in a crowded space indoors during the height of the pandemic. So oftentimes they're not really that worried about someone's health status, particularly if that person is a stranger to them. What they're actually reporting is 
a kind of visceral disgust response towards the fat body and a sense on that basis that fat people are surely doing something wrong. That it's their and fault. And that we deserve to be judged, that it's our fault for getting ourselves into this pitiable, contemptible state. And that is just fat phobia. It's not a thoughtful dialogue. If somebody, I'm going to use your, your word here, if somebody is fat and they decide that they want to change their way that their body is, is there anything wrong with that? No. I mean, look, I'm a huge fan of bodily autonomy. I think people are entitled to do what they want with their bodies. And that includes intentional weight loss, of course. What I would say is that people often feel not just entitled to lose weight, they feel obligated to lose weight. Hmm. But those are two very different things. They're very different things. And that's where it starts to worry me because even if someone is pursuing this project, they should be aware of some of the risks of weight cycling. So again, weight cycling is what usually happens to people who diet and exercise their way into weight loss. Study after study shows the same thing, that people will often lose a moderate amount of weight in the short term, but the weight will come back pretty inexorably for the vast majority of people. And between a third and two thirds of people end up heavier than they started. So one way of looking at it is trying to shrink our bodies is this project, which people are perfectly entitled to do, but they put people on this perpetual treadmill of getting smaller temporarily, regaining the weight, and then being kind of forced to diet again by this sense that they need to be smaller. And it turns out that repeatedly losing and regaining weight has health effects that are really negative. Weight cycling is linked to cardiovascular problems. It's linked to increasing rates of type 2 diabetes. It's linked to immune dysfunction. And it's also linked to mental health struggles. So I would want someone to feel entitled to do what they want, but also really apprised of the risks and the costs. And the fact that for many of us, this ends up being a pretty futile project where we end up really just having the bodies that we have at the end of the day, because our bodies do tend to find their natural set point that is largely, although not wholly, determined by genetics. What's your own experience with that? I mean, you tell the story, I want to get this right, of uh, you didn't eat for days on end, right? Yeah. Well, I, I found that this was exactly my experience of having been on every diet under the sun that you know you could possibly name, I think, over a 25-year period. And I always regained the weight and it became progressively difficult to lose weight on these diets. I think because of the um, small but pretty probative studies showing that people who do lose a lot of weight, especially if they lose it rapidly, their metabolisms tend to slow down really markedly. And I got to the point where after 25 years of being on this treadmill of dieting, where I really couldn't lose weight on a diet, And so I was so desperate to lose weight that at a certain point, I just decided to stop eating. It seemed like really the only way to lose weight was to fast entirely. So I got into very disordered eating territory, arguably bordering on a full-blown eating disorder, where at one point, yeah, I just simply hadn't eaten for seven days and had just consumed water and nothing else. You talk in the book about living peacefully in your body. How long did it take for you to get to that place? A really long time. It was, I think the political awakening that I had came very early. So in the early 2000s, just after I graduated high school and had been so bullied for my weight as a high school student, and 
really subject to an enormous amount of fat phobia that was a way misogyny uh, was manifesting itself because um, as I write about in the book, I was one of three girls in an all boys school the year it integrated. But shortly after that, in the early 2000s, I discovered the fat activist community and activists like Kate Harding and Leslie Kinzel and Marion Kirby were really influential on me politically. But actually coming to grips with my own body and applying that personal piece of it to myself mm. took, yeah, a good 25 years for it to really sink in. Um, and that body piece came through really getting so angry that at the amount of time and money and energy and bandwidth I had spent trying to be a smaller person than I just naturally am. What do you make of the Ozempic craze in the face of everything that we've been talking about? Yeah. Well, again, I, I certainly don't want to begrudge anyone their individual choices in this arena. But are um, they individual choices or are they what you've been talking about, which is a societal push toward this idea that you need to be different? I think that's it. I think you captured it really well. The The worry that I have is people don't just feel entitled to take these drugs for weight loss. And we should note, of course, they have a really important and quite exciting role in treating type 2 diabetes and may have other health benefits. Um, for example, for cardiovascular issues, there is real potential there. Uh, these benefits kicked in before and hence independently of weight loss. But understood purely as weight loss drugs, it worries me that people will feel obligated to shrink themselves because these new technologies are available. And yet you'll and, hear from people who, who take this drug who say that it's changed their lives. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm sure for many people it has. Um, I just worry that a lot of that is due to the fat phobia that we otherwise face in society and not due to these bodily states necessarily being a problem in and of themselves. I mean, the idea of quote unquote obesity as disease, it's a very unusual disease that doesn't have specific symptoms. So I worry about the way this is being dressed up in kind of medicalizing language for people who are often not yet, statistically speaking, at an elevated risk for health problems. Another aspect of this that really bears mentioning is these drugs do have a lot of costs and side effects that people should be cognizant of. Um, Including the fact that you need to take them for the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, the weight does seem, according to most studies I've looked at, to come roaring back yeah. upon discontinuation. And people get really serious gastrointestinal effects. For some people, that's merely unpleasant. The majority of people will get those side effects. But for some people, it's potentially life-threatening. So um, gastrointestinal side effects like gastroparesis, the paralysis of the gut. So yeah, I'm really concerned about this social practice while at the same time really sending nothing but you know, love and good vibes to anyone who is going down this road very understandably. Um, I'm sure I would have been going down this road even five years ago. So really, hmm. um, yeah, wishing my best to anyone who is on this path. You're not on that path now. So let me end. We started in some ways talking <laughs> about what it was like when you were out, you know, on that book tour years ago. I mean, how, this is a strange question, but like, how, how, do you, how do you think about your own body now? You know, it feels so freeing. It's just amazing to go into a room packed with people in a 
bookstore or a library or, you know, public event at a university, whatever it is, and to not feel the need to hide my body. And just the sense that I don't mind what photos people take. I don't have to pretend I'm something I'm not, namely slim. And that um, when I do feel these moments of self-criticism, the mantra I've adopted that has really been liberating for me personally and that I want to offer to my readers and also to listeners is I say, my body is for me, your body is for you, and so on and so forth. And so the idea that my body is for me, when I do feel those residual self-criticisms mount or that internalized male gaze kind of fall on me, I just reflect that my body isn't there to serve or please or placate others. And yeah, that feeling of dissatisfaction kind of dissipates. I'm really glad to talk to you about this book. There are a lot of people who will find a lot in here. Um, and thank you for, for writing it, but thank you for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. What a pleasure and a privilege. Kate Mann is an associate professor of philosophy at Cornell University. Her new book is Unshrinking, How to Face Fat Phobia. Your thoughts on this, welcome. You can email us or send a voice memo. Just record that on your phone and then email it to us. And the email address is current at cbc.ca. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.